Welcome to Life After Blindness, a blog and podcast that is dedicated to the exploration of an enabled life of blindness. And now, here's your host, Tim Schwartz. Thank you, Alyssa, and thanks once again to all of you for listening to the Life After Blindness podcast. On this week's episode, I'll be speaking with Rose Morales and Charles Heiser about the two recent assistive technology conferences that just wrapped up, CSUN and AxCon. Rose and Charles will tell us about their experiences with each conference being completely virtual this year and talk with us about many of the special presentations that were delivered at each conference. If you have any questions or comments, please send your emails to tim at lifeafterblindness.com or leave me a voicemail by calling 201-588-5221. That's right, it's 2021 and accessible technology conference season. Probably for me as a blind tech nerd, this is probably the best time of year for me, my favorite time of year, and I'm just so happy to be able to to talk about these things and uh, present this to you guys listening and cover CSUN and AxCon, and to help me do that this year, since everything is virtual and nobody can be there in person because of you-know-what happening right now. I have some fantastic guests who have agreed to come on and talk with me about all the things they've learned and their impressions as to what's been going on with this year's conference season. I'm so happy to be joined by Rose Morales and Charles Heiser. Rose, Charles, thank you so much for joining me on Life After Blindness. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, Rose, you formerly worked with Apple, and now you're kind of working on some other things. Can you maybe just explain a little bit about what it is you do? So I am lead tester for an online education platform. So what does that involve? We talk about accessibility versus usability. So the company that I work for technically has accessibility baked into their website. However, they want to make it more usable for the population that uses it that has accessibility needs. And so I'm working with leadership on improving design and improving usability. And it's a lot of fun. And that's why my company paid for me to go to CSUN this year. That is like the dream job of a blind tech nerd. I mean, that that's just so cool. So I'm so glad that you're able to take some time to join me then and, and share your experience and your talents and, uh, and help us out today. So thank you for that, Rose. Now, Charles, you have been a, a freelancer or freelance editor, I should say, and kind of a student of accessibility. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I've been freelance editing uh, on my own as a completely independent blind person for about the last five years. And um, because of the uh, times we've been living in, I lost pretty much all of my client base. I sort of trickled away to focus on more important things, which is absolutely completely fair. So I decided to switch gears after that. And uh, as you said, become sort of a student of accessibility, by which I mean, Um, I've been blind all my life, so I face accessibility uh, trials and triumphs every day, but I wanted to learn more. I wanted to learn kind of the nuts and bolts specifically about digital accessibility, and so because of that, I have... uh, the I have applied and and gotten the scholarship for DQ University, which is a uh, education program that DQ Systems runs. Uh, They are also the person who put on AxCon, which is a a relatively new conference. It's only been going the last couple of years. And it ran this year at the same time as CSUN. So CSUN ran for most of this uh, week and AxCon ran for two days in the middle of that. So while Rose was getting paid to cover CSUN, I attended AxCon and got some tidbits out of that. Which again is absolutely fantastic because again, your uh, interests and talents are good use for me. So thanks for that. Appreciate it. Um, it works out well. Uh, and that's that's kind of something I want to get into with these uh, conferences this year, guys, because last year, as a lot of people may remember, th- this is conference time. And last year, this is about when the pandemic was really becoming something real to most people. And with CSUN especially, it was, will they, won't they? Is it going to be in person? Is it going to be virtual? Is it going to be kind of half and half? What's it going to be like? And it ended up being in person, but a lot of companies had to back out because of, of just how things went. And this year, 
It was fully virtual, all of it online, as well as AxCon uh, was this year. And it was kind of a different experience. So can you guys kind of talk about the difference, like what you've experienced in the past and, and how was your experience this year with everything being fully virtual? So I have to say, I've never been to CSUN in person. So the experience that I have to reference would be attending an ACB national convention and then attending the Washington State Convention uh, for ACB. Um, So those are what I have to reference. Now, with that being said, there are three different things that went on with CSUN this year. So we had live Q&A sessions we had presentations, and then of course we had the exhibit hall. So the way I understood it, the live Q&A sessions had to be recorded early. And then after those sessions played, the people who presented for those sessions stayed to ask questions or to answer questions, I should say, after their sessions were done playing. Well, I mean, I guess that makes sense. They could get it pre-recorded. You've got some answers to questions in the can, but then that kind of prohibits actual live interaction in Q&A, doesn't it? It does. And here's the thing about the live Q&A. So you had a button that you could click and you could type in a question. And then after you typed in that question, that question was submitted to panelists. So people weren't talking live to the presenters. So sometimes you had one person reading the question, one person answering. Sometimes you had one person reading and answering. But it still didn't have that live feel to me. I felt the best presentations were those that came from people who had more than one person presenting along with them. So like a panel-like discussion. And that absolutely makes sense because you've got that panel. There is much more interactivity there. And I bet that did flow probably a lot better than something that was pre-recorded. But again, I get it. You know, you have to make hard choices in some places. And and this is the first year they've tried to do all virtual. So, you know, hopefully we don't have to do that next year, mm-hmm. but if they keep any of this implemented at all and find that it worked in any way or that they could tweak it and make it better for, for years to come, did it feel to you like maybe there's some elements here that if they did it right and, and, and made it feel more interactive along with the live, you know, type of interaction next year or going forward after this pandemic is over. I mean, could that be done? Do you think there there's something that they could do there? I would like to see them set better expectations. And what I mean by that is a lot of the live discussion was happening in Zoom rooms, but I feel like that wasn't made clear. We were told, go to the exhibit hall. So you go to the exhibit hall, then you see the company name, you click on the company name, and then it says, talk to Booth Staff Live. Well, I don't know what's going to happen when I hit that button. I don't know if I'm going to be in a Zoom room. Am I going to be on a one-on-one Zoom call or am I going to be in a group discussion? And I felt like when I went into an exhibit room one time that I was just watching others' experiences. And having worked in sales for Apple for five years, I also did accessibility training. But I can say that I know a lot about creating good user experiences. And one of the things that I felt that Apple really did well was being able to allow users the opportunity to engage and also allow them to watch interactions from afar. So what I would like to see happen is the ability to watch uh, conversations happening, so maybe in the form of a group discussion, but then if they want to go out into a breakout room, they go, okay, well, this is how that's going to happen. Yeah, I've had experiences going to you know state conventions or, or what have you and being on an exhibit floor where maybe it's not my question that was getting answered because I was standing in line mm-hmm. or standing around waiting and just kind of listening to people present or whatever. But then somebody next to me asks a great question and I just happen to be standing there to hear that great question. Right. And so that's a different level of interactivity that... I don't know if you truly got with this. So when you did hit that button, because I did like the idea of being able to say, okay, I can hit a button and talk to a a company or a representative or somebody, you know, live and ask my questions about their product or their service. But it was kind of a, okay, what's going to happen when I do this? Am I going to just listen in while they're at a virtual booth, quote unquote, or other people asking questions? And when it's my turn, it's my turn. Or am I going to actually get directly to somebody who's mm-hmm. waiting for my call? You know, they're standing by waiting, you know, waiting for your call. You yeah. Know, so it was kind of 
you know, a mystery until you actually did it. So when you did hit that button, what exactly was that experience like then, Rose? So I had two very opposite experiences. So on one side of the spectrum, I was in a room and it was full of 25 people. It was a big discussion. And I was like, okay, that's nice, but I want to be able to engage one-on-one and I don't really feel like I can here. And then I went into a room where I was the only one there and the person was just waiting for somebody to come in and she talked to me for a long time. Well, then Charles came in behind me, but she didn't realize that he had come in to join me. And so she very quickly wrapped up the presentation and then addressed him. Oh, but he could hear what she was presenting to you? Exactly. Oh, well, I mean, so there is that kind of a people lined up at your table feel and you can hear things, but they don't realize, well, this is just somebody that might be just listening in. Maybe they have a question, maybe they don't. You know, that that could be something to be ironed out and could be really cool going forward if they just make it more uh, understandable as to what you're doing. I have to say, I did like that page for CSUN because you got your alphabetical list of all the people on the quote exhibit floor, the virtual you know exhibit floor, and you could select different categories of what you were looking for, whether it was you know blindness or or you know some other sort of disability or accessibility that you were looking for, and then just go down the list and you got an about page or about line I should say or a heading mm-hmm. that told you who the company was, what they were about, what their products were. A lot of them had PDFs that were accessible, so you could read about their their product mm-hmm. or service. They had many of them had. Uh, YouTube videos attached. You could go and watch a video presentation of whatever it was that they did. And then of course the contacts under that and the, you know, the contacting them live kind of withstanding the rest of that information I found so great, especially for me as a podcaster and wanting to do some research, seeing all that information going, Oh, what is this company? I don't know who this is. You know, getting a list in the past, mm-hmm. it was just a list of companies and I don't know who they are, or what they do to have that breakdown in a, and you know, the PDF and the YouTube videos and all that, I really, really like that. I hope that that stays forever. Well, with the caveat, of course, that their PDFs were accessible because I ran into a a lot of, well, not a lot, but a fair amount of companies, and I will not name names here, who did not have accessible PDFs. Oh, no. Um, And I I did send some emails about that, and I haven't heard anything. So, you know, I'm not expecting to hear anything, but... CSUN said, you know, we're not responsible for the content people put up here. We have asked that everybody make them as accessible as possible, but like, it's not our problem. <laughs> it's, well, and you I, know, it's their materials. So I, I get it. There is a certain level of, there is a certain level of, of independence when you're, when you're doing your exhibit tables, you know, and I think that transferred uh, both with its pros and its cons very well into CSUN's virtual exhibit hall this year. I definitely agree with that. And I think then that allows for us as consumers or just people interested to see who was it that was truly looking at this and saying, oh yeah, that's right. This is this being the conference. This is, we really should make sure this is accessible for people. Mm -hmm. And you know, for me, yeah, that's kind of an eyebrow raise. Like, wait a minute, don't they know where they're presenting and what they're doing? They really should check this. So that kind of a lot of those moments. Yeah. You can have kind of a personal feeling then of, well, okay, whatever their service or product is, that's great. But Hmm. Do, do if somebody else offers something the same or or especially better, maybe I'll go with the other one that was accessible with their presentation. So so that being said, then let's switch over to you, Charles, and your experiences with Axcon. I know, of course, you did do a lot of uh, looking into CSUN with Rose and 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 all that, but you uh, were kind of tasked or chose to uh, look into Axcon. Uh, tell me what what is Axcon? What is maybe a difference, if any, of CSUN and uh, your experiences there? So I definitely wanted to do AxCon. Um, this is also my first year of doing sort of the accessible side of conferences. Um, I've done a handful of NFB conferences, both state and uh, one national. Um, so again, Rose and I are coming from similar but different perspectives. So I've never done CSUN Live. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I don't know how AxCon has been handled in the past. It's only been going since I think 2017. Uh, don't quote me on that, but it's it's not been that long. Um, so I would say that it's it's smaller, right? CSUN has some some big names behind it. Um, their their exhibit hall is really big. AxCon was more on the sort of development side. It wasn't so much focused on 
or well, CSUN isn't focused on the assistive tech uh, side per se, but it has that element. Axcon didn't really have that. It was more about like uh, the coding of accessibility and and like the business models of accessibility and you know sort of the how do you how do you pitch it? How do you how do you use change management to get other people to really get on board with accessibility? There was a there was one presentation I really enjoyed that was uh, Jamie Knight from the BBC who's done a whole bunch of talks, um, and he he talked a lot about how they were just they were inclusive. It, his presentation was about uh, using virtual reality and and the BBC's experience and his experience with. Uh, testing that with a wide range of, of participants and how that could be used for accessibility purposes. But he he and uh, Gareth Ford Williams, who is another member of the uh, BBC accessibility team, he's um, head user experience design, I believe is what his title was. I don't remember Jamie's title off the top of my head. but I won't quote you on that either then. <laughs> yeah, together, together um, they were doing presentations at, at different places talking about the BBC's accessibility model. And it's stuff like that that I, I went to AxCon for to learn, not, not just to sort of build off of the knowledge I've been gaining as I've been studying accessibility, but also to see it applied, to see how business people really use it. So it was it was less consumer focused. It was, it was definitely more um, professionals working in the field sort of focused. Um, that being said, I think the biggest difference was actually that we had a chance to ask questions live, uh, assuming the presenters left enough time at the end. Um, there was an active chat feed in every session I went to, and people were actively engaging in it. Now, it didn't always get big, but like for the keynotes, for example, there were hundreds of messages. Some of the stuff I went into, there was maybe only 20 or 50 total messages. And most of them were people greeting each other going, oh, hey, I saw you yesterday, or you know, I recognize you from so-and-so or whatever. And then everybody just kind of settles down and listens to the presentation. But there was an active chat feed and uh, DQ actually gave people um, sort of MCs, like everybody, everybody was paired with somebody from DQ who managed sort of the tech side and the chat side. So in a sense, every session we went to, you had somebody to, to bounce off of if you needed a second person. Most people did not. They settled into their PowerPoints and they, they just kind of rolled with it. And the DQ person introduced them and, and you know they, they did their intro, they did their outro. Um, but I did see a couple of people sort of ask questions as they went or, or you know, pause and say, hey, what's going on in the chat? And I think that added a sense of connection and a sense of authenticity that we struggle to find in the online space because we're just not around people. So having that live chat and having that interaction, I think really, really helped me get into AxCon. Whereas I don't know if I would have gotten that, especially my first conference, if I didn't have that ability. So I really appreciate that. Rose, let's go back to you with, with your experience with CSUN. What were kind of your big takeaways? Like, was there a theme of, of something that you kind of sensed happening or, or types of products or, or, or presentations that, that really kind of, uh, you know, just kind of struck you like, hey, that's, that's cool and important? So I think if you're looking for products, that's more the exhibit hall versus presentations were more things like compliance, like sure, web accessibility, yeah. like managing things and really focusing on different subsections of accessibility. So whether it be like speech recognition or augmented communication, audio description, sign language, captioning, things like that. And I know there was definitely a lot being discussed around things like captioning and audio description. So let's start there because that's one of my, my favorite topics to uh, get into because it's one of my favorite pastimes. Um, what kind of things were talked about in, in that space? Yeah, so there were two presentations on audio description. One was more about how do you use the right language with audio description versus the other one was more here's why you should have audio description 
what does audio description do? So like one of the things they talked about was extended audio description, which I didn't even know what that was. But what they do there is they pause the video and then they allow you to explain, say like in an educational setting, okay, here's this graph. Here's what's going on with this graph. And then the video continues. But then they also talked about the other types of audio description or rather the challenges that you face. So do you want to talk over music? Do you want to talk before a scene or do you want to maybe pause something maybe for a second? What happens when you have slight pauses? Well, what happens is the video becomes slightly longer, but not by much. And so that's a good option if you don't want to use extended audio description, but you're lacking the space that you need to explain the complexity of what's going on. Um, But as for the presentation on captioning, it was talking about the challenges that come with automatic captioning in an educational setting. So it said, and don't quote me on this, but I'm generally pretty accurate with my numbers. Automatic captioning in an educational setting was 68% accurate in this study. When they fed vocabulary into the whatever recognition system they were using, accuracy improved by 14%. And this was in an educational setting. So in these types of settings, you're going to have vocabulary that's a little bit different than when you're dealing with everyday speech. And so that's why I think it might be a little bit more challenging in that setting than if you were doing automatic captioning for like everyday speech. And that vocabulary you're talking about to get that extra 14%, which which is might not sound like a lot, but that's a big jump from right. 68%. So that could really make the difference for somebody who's deaf or, or deaf blind. And, and that vocabulary is really training, correct? That's like additional training for the captioning to, to automatically pick up things? Exactly. They're feeding it vocabulary lists for whatever course the student was going into. So say if it was a science course or it was a course on astronomy, well, then maybe you might feed it planets or things about the solar system. And you're absolutely right, Tim. The that 14 percent matters a big deal. Uh, They gave us an example of a sentence. uh, What was it? I am not allergic to penicillin. Uh, Well, if you take out one word of that sentence, you miss 17 percent of that. Mm-hmm. And I it, am allergic to penicillin. I right. Am, right. That's the obvious, <laughs> that's the obvious problem there. Right. Uh, and that's a 17% margin of error. And that drastically changes the sentence. Mm-hmm. So while 68% and 14% more accurate seem like big numbers, if you put them into context, it's, we've still got a long way to go. Exactly. All right. So from captioning and audio description to coding. Now, when I say coding, a lot of people be like, well, what does that matter to us as blind or visually impaired people? Well, we're talking about websites. We're talking about apps, talking about the things that we're using every single day and making sure that they're accessible and that, you know, things are labeled and graphics are properly understood and all that kind of thing. And I know that was a a huge focus at AxCon, wasn't it, Charles? Oh, yeah. And you can break that down into several different areas. Each of those points you just said have specialists uh, working in their fields. And I mean, you have people who literally do nothing but figure out what the best image description is for things, how to how to best describe a logo, how to keep it short enough to, you know, be um, not intrusive, I guess I could say, but long enough to have enough information. but yeah, like I said earlier, AxCon was was mostly on the on the professional side of things, um, and a lot of that had to do with Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or WCAG, which is the professional term for basically the guidelines that most people follow um, that have been agreed on to measure a website's accessibility. Um, and there's a whole bunch of specifics, and a lot of AxCon got into the nuts and bolts of this. But essentially, it was there were a fair amount of how-tos. There were a fair amount of, you know, how do you use, say, Aria to to do um, different types of widgets, and there were a fair amount of, you know, what what is a business going to look at for why should we be accessible? Um, there were talks about how to present to different stakeholders. There were talks about how to 
uh, talk between teams as sort of a liaison of accessibility. Um, and there were talks about the culture of accessibility too, not just the coding side, but like, how do you get your employees or your friends or your fellow professionals, your coworkers involved in accessibility? And what does that mean when you move from just a series of checkboxes to actually understanding why accessibility is important? It's definitely a cultural discussion that I don't know that we're fully having. I know there are pockets of it. There are people who have that discussion in parts of our community and, and others, you know, and companies, organizations that do it and do it well, but it's a kind of a bigger thing that I think is something that should be focused on more because it's not just teaching programmers and developers, Hey, this is what you should do. And please, please bake it in at the beginning, you know, and have that understanding, that training, that education to know that accessibility in an app is just as important as anything else. And it should be there from the beginning if possible and when possible, of course. Um, but that being said, that culture in that discussion isn't really there yet, is it? No, it's not. And it was one of the big thrusts that I saw at uh, AxCon. I would say it's probably a secondary thrust. The, the main point of AxCon, or at least the main point I got out of AxCon this year was digital accessibility is more important than ever. And I think a lot of people can agree with that given the year we've been through. But yeah, one of those secondary points was culture is a better driving force than any set of guidelines or laws than you, that you might be using to sort of check yourself, right? Because then you're just going to fulfill the checkbox and be like, oh, I'm compliant, whatever, I'm done. But if you, if you really get involved in culture and you start to realize like, oh, this isn't just about a checkbox. This is because if I don't do this, people get confused or people get lost on my website or people can't access this control or people can't fill out this form. And then that blocks people and that sort of compounds the, the frustration they're having. You know, you start to realize like, these are people. Yeah, they're people with disabilities. They're people accessing information in an alternative way, but they're still people. They're people just like I am. And why would I want to have an inferior experience? So why should they have an inferior experience? That's, that, was, that was a big thing for me. And it got dry at times because it was, you know, business <laughs> professionals bet, yeah. talking to business professionals. Sure. That underlying message when, when, when companies would come forward and say, look, we've redone our accessibility process and we've had people personally get involved because they met someone or personally get involved because they have a temporary disability and they're on workers comp right now or you know, whatever their story was, there was, there was a spark of life in those presentations that I didn't really get from other people. I'm not really sure how to explain it, but it's, it's there. It's a thing. I mean, you know, starting your process, starting, you know, whatever your, whatever your workflow is with inclusivity and accessibility in mind really, really changes not just the way your products come out, but the culture that you're working in too. And it showed in the presentations I went to. It is something that I would hope that companies would get passionate about because ultimately we are consumers too. And I sometimes am fearful that people look at the numbers and say, well, depending on the numbers of when they come out or where, where what you're looking at, you know, 75, 80, 85%, whatever, you know, of, of, of people that are blind or visually impaired are unemployed and they figure, mm -hmm. well, they're unemployed. They don't have money. So they're not a consumer for our product. You know, the, they're, they're not going to buy our things or, or whatever. And so they don't feel, and I, and I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I fear sometimes that that's the case that, that maybe they feel like, well, they're not a paying customer. So what, what are we doing this for? You know, why should we do this? But it's, it's more than that because yes, some of us may be unemployed. Majority, obviously, of us are unemployed, but that doesn't mean we don't have money to spend. That doesn't mean we don't have family members with money to spend. That doesn't mean that there are people in our lives that know us and and have money to spend. You know, and when you aren't doing things correctly and making it accessible for everyone, no matter who they are, no matter what the disability that really can make it difficult. And honestly, that's negative PR in my opinion. Um, not naming names because I don't want to go down that rabbit hole again on the show. Yeah. <laughs> but but there have been companies even in just the last couple of years that fight things all the way to the Supreme Court because they feel that they're right and they don't have to do it. And it's like, 
well, technically, legally, you should do it, but you know what? You should just do it because you want to do it. You know, you should want things to be accessible whenever possible um, because it's the right thing to do. So talking about this, then I did mention a little bit earlier about, you know, buttons and, and things like that not being labeled, but to kind of give people a little bit more understanding of this, you know, maybe they're just listening to the podcast, but maybe they don't go online a whole lot, or maybe they don't use a whole lot of apps other than, you know, a podcast app, which I'm glad at least they use that. Um, but, <laughs> but to give anybody else who maybe is cited or, or a family member of somebody who doesn't understand, um, let's go back to you, Rose, when you go to a website or an app that has accessibility problems. If you don't mind, just take a little bit of time just to explain what would that feel like? What is that like when you go somewhere and you're like, wow, this is just not accessible. I can't use this. I start out honestly with the mentality of what am I not doing that the designer is expecting me to do? So I jump into problem solving mode. I will try to use H to navigate by headings, or I'll try to jump to um, a different keyword and and see if that improves my experience. And then I'll just start trying to use my tricks. So I'll go, okay, maybe they're not expecting me to hit enter or space because they're not counting on the fact that I'm using a keyboard. Maybe they're expecting me to use a mouse. So our mouse simulation tricks are going to work. And then what happens is I try all my tricks and I get I get exhausted from that. And I, I even said the other day on Twitter, I was like, imagine how much more productive we could be if we didn't have to problem solve our way through different accessibility barriers. And sometimes it works. Sometimes I find that trick. And then if I find an accessibility workaround, I am one of the first people to share that um, on social media, in live discussions that I'm having with my friends. But sometimes I can't get past that barrier at all. So now I've got to go, okay, is this a task I need to perform? If so, yes, okay. Am I going to need to get a sighted person involved? Okay, well, I don't live with a sighted person, so maybe that means I'm going to have to use Ira. Maybe Ira isn't a productive use case for what I'm trying to do, so maybe I need to find another company to do business with. Maybe I need to use the same company, but maybe I need to use a different product from that company. There is so much problem solving that goes into dealing with accessibility issues and it gets exhausting. And I dare say that you probably are in the minority when it comes to how far you'll go, how many tricks you'll try before getting exhausted. There's going to be a lot of people that try a couple things and they're like, well, there's no headings. I'm arrowing down, but some of it's talking, but it's not. And there's a whole bunch of button, button, buttons here that are unlabeled or images. And I don't know what this is. And I'm trying to click this link, but it's not working. And and they're just like, that's it. Forget it. And they're just done. And yes. they don't even try, you know, virtual mouse type tricks or, or other things that we know that are in our kind of a, you know, our blind toolkit, as it were. Um, and they just give up. Right. Well, and Tim, you're absolutely right. Rose and I are, are privileged enough to have had excellent training and not just from other people, but we've, we've also managed to train ourselves sometimes. And honestly, I, I feel really lucky and I feel, I feel blessed to have had those opportunities, but you're absolutely right. There are people who don't have those tricks or who are learning those tricks and it's what we do, right? We're, we feel like it's really important because we have had that training to go in and see if we can figure it out and then walk other people through it who may be getting really, really frustrated. Like that's, well, that's not, why we're in digital accessibility. It's not just about privilege though. Think about people with cognitive disabilities and think about the attention span that they might have for problem solving, or maybe it's not attention span, maybe something about their disability makes it so that problem solving is not a strong point for them or problem solving gets really stressful. And so for them, if they can't solve a problem, they're just going to leave that website. And that's not true all the time. And it depends on the website. Some websites sure. do have simpler vocabulary and they do have simpler workflows. So it, again, it really depends on the situation. But in there are quite a few cases where they will just leave a website due to exhaustion. And I can't blame them. No, 
I don't blame them at all. And having had ex- uh, similar experiences as you guys have had and similar training that you guys have had, I, I, I even just give it up. I'm like, no, I, I'm not, I can't bother with this anymore. I will go somewhere else to get this product or this service. I'll order my pizza elsewhere. That's all I'll say about that. Um, but, um, but so when this happens though, unfortunately it has to go to a next level. Sometimes I'm not at all the first person standing up swinging or, you know, a poster around saying sue everybody. Cause I, I don't know that that's always the best answer, but sometimes it's the only last resort answer or, or bringing people to the negotiation table. Uh, I've talked to Robert Kingett on, on a recent episode of the podcast about bringing Patreon to the table and talking to them about making their website and their app more accessible for creators that are disabled, that are blind or visually impaired and making sure that things are, are accessible for us. And it was a structured negotiation. They didn't have to necessarily go to court. And that's fantastic. But sometimes mm-hmm. legal actions have to kind of get involved. And Rose, I know that as part of CSUN, they did talk a lot about the the legal side of accessibility. They did. Um, so I went to a really interesting presentation um, and it talked about legal trends in 2021 and what this lawyer was predicting. So he mentioned in 2020 uh, that between uh, October and December, there were a, there was a spike in lawsuits. And so he said, if we take that number uh, of lawsuits between October and December, and we multiply that by four, we're looking at an expected 4,600 lawsuits um, in 2021. Now, with that being said, that's not the only thing we're expecting. So in total, this lawyer was predicting 36,000 legal actions So even before it gets to the lawsuit stage, as you know, there are different negotiation tactics. There are um, legal demand letters. Of the legal actions expected, 36,000 are expected. And I just think that is, I have no words for that. It's very unfortunate and and very sad that it will come to that. I'm hoping that that ends up not being true because I know, of course, they were taking that quarter, timesing it by four for the expectation of what the future could hold. I really, really hope that that ends up not happening, but unfortunately, it it very well could. I honestly would not be surprised. I mean, it's estimated that 98% of the internet is considered inaccessible, and that's with automated testing tools, which never catch all of the errors. So, you know, that 98% is going to be probably higher. Um, Mm -hmm. And like you were saying earlier, I mean, lawsuits are a tool that we have. It is not a tool that a lot of people can use for various reasons. And it's a tool that people don't want to use because of the ramifications and the Mm -hmm. the costs and the press and everything else that comes with it. Right. But if it's necessary, it's necessary. Yeah, Charles, I think that's right. That like I said, is a last resort. If you absolutely have to, you know, then, then it becomes necessary. But I know there's a lot of things we can do before then to at least try to reach out and try to get the word out that, Hey, this isn't accessible, you know, and here's what you can do to fix it. So I'm wondering, even though maybe the answer is kind of obvious, uh, perhaps, but did, did they give any kind of suggestions or recommendation as to what we as consumers could do to try to at least you know alleviate some of this this going forward and having it not need to go to court or or have lawsuits did they did they talk about best practices when it comes to explaining how things aren't accessible they talked about it but not from the consumer perspective they talked about it from the company perspective so there was a whole presentation on how this company had received a complaint from the office of civil rights and how they only had three weeks to come into compliance. And there were, I think they said 37 um, web pages or sites within their uh, website. This was UCLA that was talking about this. And really oh, yeah. just the cohesion their team had to have in order to beat that OCR complaint. Oh yeah, that was that was an incredible presentation because it was it was UCLA coming to the table basically saying we did screw up an office of civil rights told us we screwed up and what they said was they had a case and then i guess the case was 
basically like, it was dismissed. It was was it dismissed? Well, it, it was wasn't set dismissed. to rest. It was like held. I don't know what the proper term is, but it was it was still on file, but it wasn't it wasn't like actively being pursued. Right. And then all of a sudden it was again, and Office of Civil Rights came to UCLA and was like, "You have three weeks to fix all of your stuff." Oh wow! And it was apparently not a good time. But they apparently also had started doing it already. So like some of their frameworks mm-hmm. were in place. But um, for people who may not be aware, usually mm-hmm. when you have a big, big like network of websites like that, they're maintained by different teams and different departments. And like everybody has different coders. Some of them are outsourced to other vendors. Some of them are built in-house by somebody on the team. Like when when a giant organization like UCLA gets something like that, they were telling us there was there was a scramble to get everybody to communicate. And it made it worse because there were a bunch of third-party people involved that didn't necessarily know what the plan was. Now, UCLA said they got lucky with one of their third-party vendors, especially because they had already heard about the complaints mm-hmm. and they were already moving to address them before UCLA ever contacted them. So that wound up working out in their favor, but the the story they told about their accessibility people basically trying to work with everybody to address different individual web pages. The way so, let me go back a little bit. When when you are testing a website for accessibility purposes, you test individual web pages. The website itself does not get a score. A web page gets a score, so a single URL, and they were saying that they had uh, they, they gave an example of one web page that had over 30 errors on one was it 40? Yes. On on a single web page. Either way, had, it's still too high. <laughs> right. Either and way. so what they had to do was they had to design an entirely new accessible template for that page because they're like, we cannot fix 40 yeah, errors in three it. weeks. And so they did actually give a tip to anybody facing an OCR investigation. And that was to ask the OCR to check their work. So as each page was done, as they said, as the lead tester said, okay, I believe this has passed our testing. This should be good enough for the OCR. They would then submit that page to the OCR and the OCR would say, oh yeah, you passed or no, this didn't pass. You need to go back and fix it. And so they didn't have to wait until the deadline to have their stuff audited. So they likened it to having a final exam, but being able to submit your assignment before the assignments actually do and get some feedback. And that, they say, really saves them. Now, ironically enough, this happened because of a suit against UCLA. Um, Maybe, I, I don't know the history of it, but I know there was at least one suit so they brought their experience to the table and said, hey, this is why you do not want to get sued. Yeah, we've been there, done that, right. It is a hell of a lot of work. But to be perfectly honest, it sounds like they sort of, I don't want to say they skated their way through because they definitely had uh, a lot of work to do, but they they seemed to have come out the other side a lot better and a lot stronger. Another tip they gave was that anybody on the testing side should be acquainted with legal and really just have the relationships with people that are needed to pass a compliance review uh, from the OCR. You don't want to be establishing relationships with these people while this review is going on. If you already have relationships with the people that are going to help you in a compliance review, uh, then when that review does come along, it's going to go a lot smoother. And when it comes to being a consumer of products or websites and services and things like that, don't ever be afraid to just contact the company. If they have an accessibility email, great. If they don't, just email whatever support you can find or tweet them. I've had so many times where I've sent a tweet to a specific company's help or support Twitter account if they have one, or if they don't, just tag the main one, put it out there in public. I mean, you're not trying to shame them, but put it in public and tag them or just send them a a direct message on whatever platform you find them on and ask. I've done that with a couple of uh, TV streaming apps. Now, the apps in question, I want them to make them more actually accessible with using a screen reader on on a smartphone, 
but that hopefully will come in time. But what I was asking for was, hey, last week's episode of this had audio description. This week's does not. Just want to make sure you know. And I get you know a message back that night saying, oh, sorry for the oversight. We uploaded it and it wasn't attached. It should be fixed now. Let us know if you have any other problems. Or it's only in one audio channel, not the other. Or you know whatever. Or even contacting a company and saying, hey, this particular button isn't labeled. I've been able to figure out what it is, but you may want to try to make sure it's it's labeled because you've got you know, hundreds, thousands, millions, whatever people using this app, and they may not want to use it anymore if they can't use this button. And then I'll get contacted by the company saying, oh, we didn't even realize. Thank you so much. So never, ever be afraid because you, you'll you be surprised. Now there are, are ones that don't get back to you and don't fix it, but you will be surprised at how many will actually be like, ah, oh, we didn't realize or our mistake. We'll take care of that and fix it for you. And I can't remember who said this because it's conference week and there are two conferences and man, have I watched a lot of videos, but somebody brought up a really good point at some point this week. And it was basically a consumer has a different voice than a professional does or an internal, you know, hired worker has a different voice than an external purchaser or user of a product. Right. So if I were working at one of those streaming companies and I said, Hey, this this needs to get fixed. It has a very different impact than you as a customer of those streaming companies saying, hey, this needs to get fixed. Yeah. And sometimes companies think that their stuff is accessible and it's not. And sometimes they're facing the challenge of not really knowing how to address our needs. So for example, I was listening to one presentation this week that talked about consumer research and consumer behavior. And it mentioned that while we know a lot about consumers that don't have accessibility needs, we don't know a lot about consumers in in terms of our, our market research that do have accessibility needs. So we might be marketing a hearing aid to somebody because we're thinking, oh, we want to prevent the inability to hear. But why are people getting hearing aids? They're getting hearing aids because they want to enjoy conversation and because they want to enjoy music. So if we take the marketing from an enjoyment perspective, rather than from a prevention perspective, we're going to get more customers that way. Yeah. I pay for Netflix because I want to be entertained and enjoy that content with either my family or, or on my own and having audio description built in, having an accessible app or, right. or you know service to use yeah. can make or break whether I'm actually going to pay for the service or not. So, and, and that includes more than just me. That could be my family who, you know, in my case, at least decided others may have people in their life that are, are blind, but either way, you've got sighted people around you that might be, you know, invested in that as well. And so that that's that's another angle to look at. Well, and think about it. Audio description on Netflix is a really cool example of when accessibility benefits more than the people you originally intended it to. Oh, yeah. Obviously, audio description is for people who can't see, right? They don't know what's going on. So, you know, something or someone describes it to them. But what if you're driving, but you want to catch up on your show? Well, you can't look at your phone the whole time. Turn on audio description. Well, the scenario that they shared was what if you're in the kitchen and you're cooking and you want to keep your eyes on the food you're making, you don't want to keep your eyes on the TV or what if you're tending to your kids? So they brought out, yeah. So switching gears here just a bit, guys, I know that artificial intelligence was also a big thing with AxCon, Charles, and you have some very specific opinions about artificial intelligence and and maybe some uh, things going on in that space. So tell me what you learned about AI at AxCon. Well, it was definitely a niche thing. Um, As I said earlier, there was a presentation about virtual reality. And the the big thing about AI this year uh, that I saw, at least, was a three-parter from Adobe um, talking about all of the different things they've done. And specifically, what I focused on was uh, Adobe Acrobat's liquid mode, which apparently is AI-driven. So uh, essentially, liquid mode tries to... um, you know, based on information you give it and based on your usage, it uh, for mobile devices specifically, it will try and give you the best experience for your personal experience on mobile devices. Um, and it's it's AI powered. And I just, 
I, I have feelings about AI, both good and bad. I think like everything else, it's a tool. And I think that there comes a point when you need to let the person take over. So uh, caveat, I have not personally used liquid mode yet. I've only watched presentations on it. So I cannot tell you at what point the liquid mode tries to sort of predict what you're trying to do and the aspects of your, your phone and, and all that stuff. But I do think that there comes a point where AI will wind up getting to the point where you'll have settings sort of cross uh, cross devices. As a matter of fact, Google's already uh, moving in that step. They're talking, they talked at CSUN about, and I know this is sort of Rose's bailiwick, but they uh, talked at CSUN about using your Google account to store your accessibility settings. And liquid mode does not do that per se, but it does use the artificial intelligence to look at your usage on your device to give you the best uh, experience for you. Um, and I just think that while it focused primarily on low vision usage, um, primarily like character spacing or uh, contrast or stretching of, of different characters to make them bigger or to put them in a way that's easier to see, uh, and while screen reader usage was demonstrated, um, I still think that as they develop this technology and as they learn more about how assistive tech interacts with PDFs, we're going to see something that evolves, I hope, into a seamless Adobe experience across all of their different platforms and devices powered by artificial intelligence geared specifically for accessibility, which is something that I am absolutely here for. Well, yeah, absolutely. Because if Adobe can implement that in such a way where it makes things more accessible uh, in a broader sense, not just even us necessarily, but just in a broader sense can make things more accessible. I mean, who can say no to that? Um, I know with, you know, like Apple iPhones, for example, a couple of years ago, was it iOS 14 or 13? Uh, I think it was 14 when they brought out the screen recognition and the image recognition. Some of it works really well. Some of it not so much. Um, it just depends on what you're at, but that, that intelligence that's trying to convert the information to tell you what it is you're looking at. I see a lot of promise there. Some of it might frustrate me as far as the, uh, you know, the recognition of a, of an app and, and what's in it maybe, but the, the image recognition, even though it's very basic at this point, I can see where over time, boy, that's going to get really, really useful. That's going to be so nice and helpful to find things or to find out what a button is or whatever it might be. And so, you know, the same idea, anytime there can be AI properly used for accessibility, uh, that's definitely not a bad thing. There just needs to be a way, in my opinion, to communicate what you're looking for. If the AI gets it wrong or the AI doesn't exactly get what you're trying to do, like... There needs to be some kind of user interface where you can either say, hey, that's wrong, or hey, I'm actually looking for this, or I want to find this specific thing, or I want it to actually be adjusted to this, you know, because we experience this all the time with, with our personal assistants where you try to ask it something and it misinterprets you and you're like, that's, I see how you got there. That was a good try. Not quite. Um, and you kind of run into that with AI too. You were talking about the screen recognition thing does a fairly good job, but it's not always perfect. Sometimes you still have to make some intuitive leaps and that can be a problem, especially in cognitive accessibility terms. So it is definitely a work in progress. Everybody is kind of jumping on this AR, uh, you know, machine learning kind of bandwagon. And I am super, super excited to see where that goes. I love traveling, uh, but Traveling as a blind person comes with some challenges, and I am perfectly willing to accept all of those challenges. I would be a little more willing if I had AI-powered AR or VR tools to sort of help me solve those challenges. I think using technology to do something like that is not just cool, but productive. I mean, everybody carries a phone around all the time. Why not turn it into the most powerful accessibility tool we have? 
And I think that's a really great point that you make there, Charles, because isn't that really the perfect marriage of technologies? And I could absolutely see a future where that happens. And it's not going to be just for accessibility. It's going to be very mainstreamed where you're going to have artificial intelligence that's running augmented reality or virtual reality, like you said, but also utilizing you know, compass information, you're mapping information, whether it's Apple or Google maps or what have you, you're getting information, uh, about where you are, what you're doing, um, can tap into other bits of information, you know, about businesses or get the information from a website, say for a, a business's hours or their menu or what have you, and augment that, you know, with augmented reality and, and, you know, other types of interactive environments with the AI, I could absolutely see a day where that all happens coming together to make an experience where you could be dropped in the middle of a city and use all these tools, whether you're sighted or blind, visually impaired or what have you, whatever the situation. And as long as it is accessible for us, at least you could get around no matter what you do, you know, and, and have all this information just at your fingertips. Yes. You can get, you know, street by street, turn by turn directions and basic information, but you really have to kind of combine your use of different apps and get information from here, there and everywhere. But eventually if all that starts talking together with AI, that would be a fantastic use case for the future. Well, let's, let's give an example here. Let's go back a couple of years. Let's go pre 2020 and let's say you're going to a conference in, I don't know, let's say New York City, right? But you're at a conference center you've never been to before and you're flying in for your job or, or whatever. And you're going to this conference and you're gonna be here for three days. How would it change your experience if you had even a rudimentary AI that you could say, I'm going to be at this hotel and these are my places I need to be. And because of the AI's precise geo-tracking and because of the work that's been done with something like, say, Soundscape, where it's predicting the precise uh, point of interest from, uh, from an address. Um, and of course, the apps that are working with like Bluetooth audio beacons, like uh, there, there were precursors to Soundscape that did that. Um, you know, the AI could say, okay, you're going to be at the airport. And by the time you land, um, I will have a map from the airport to your hotel. And I will, you know, have the, the rental car that you usually like to use or the transportation that you usually like to use set up and ready to go. You confirm your payment, you go. And then, okay, your first event is tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. And you need to go to this room in the conference center, which is over here. And, you know, I can tell you like it's so many feet and then you need to go down, you know, two floors and blah, 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 whatever. And you can get directions to a conference center or th through a conference center that you've never been to before. You as a quote unquote normal business person benefit from the tools that were originally developed for a blind or visually impaired person or a person with cognitive disabilities who may have trouble tracking their physical environment. So as we're wrapping up here, I do want to mention to everyone listening that there there were maybe a handful of product releases with these conventions, but mostly they did focus a lot on existing products and updates to those products. And that is something that I will definitely be covering here on Life After Blindness in the weeks to come. So I just wanted to let people know that I didn't forget that there are definitely products that uh, have been talked about. That being said, then, Rose, back to you then to kind of wrap up this whole conversation we've had around CSUN and AxCon. I wanted to get your thoughts on a really big topic that we've kind of touched on here and there in our conversation, but I want to dive into it a bit more, and that's surrounding advocacy. Tell me what you feel about advocacy and what you've learned attending these conferences. So it's interesting that you mentioned that because, yes, a lot of the presentations at CSUN were not focused on assistive technology and were instead focused on supporting accessibility as a movement. And some presentations, yes, did focus on compliance. So like from the legal perspective or the auditing perspective, but I'm really getting the sense that people are wanting to also approach accessibility from 
a needs-based perspective and how do we support accessibility in our various business roles. And by doing, in order to do that, we need to know the needs of our users. So for example, when we are communicating with those who maybe use augmentative uh, communication tools, maybe we're asking about a word that's not in their vocabulary list. So how do we ask them to demonstrate their competency when it comes to knowing about a subject when they may have a limited vocabulary in the list that they're using for the moment. Or when we talk about deaf people, for example, and the fact that we might think they prefer live captioning when really a user research study discussed the fact that a lot of deaf people, 93% in the study, prefer video relay services. Or when we think of sickle cell disease, a lot of us don't know what it is. Like I didn't know that a lot of sickle cell, um, a lot of patients who have sickle cell disease, they're dealing with constant pain. And so simplifying the grade level that we're using, simplifying the language that we're using for a form to a fifth or sixth grade level is really helpful for them when they're in pain and they, they could be crying. They have to be suffering for eight hours before they can seek treatment sometimes, because if it's before that, well, then the reasoning might be, well, this is going to go away. And so the medical advice, and don't quote me on this, but it seems to be that they have to be suffering for eight hours to get medical attention. And then even when they do get attention, they're dealing with discrimination because people are like, well, where is this pain coming from? I don't see anything that would be causing this person pain. And then, of course, we had presentations on designing an inclusive user experience, and we had presentations on how do we run uh, good user research studies. So I think that instead of thinking of CSUN only as an assistive technology convention, we really need to think about it in two different categories. So assistive technology and accessibility. And the nice thing about CSUN is the recordings, the presentations, so whether they be live Q&A or the on-demand presentations, they're actually open to paid attendees for another week. So I'm definitely going to be digging into this content more. Um, and if you have me on another podcast, I can certainly talk about those things. But yeah, I've learned a lot. So Charles, any final thoughts? Yeah. So a lot of what Rose said, uh, I definitely echo. Accessibility uh, advocacy has been something that was touched on. Like I said, AxCon was more about the sort of nuts and bolts of accessibility. But accessibility as a culture, like I said earlier, was was one of the uh, driving keys behind AxCon, or at least it was for my AxCon. Uh, and that's the other interesting thing is, while we're here telling you about our CSUN and AxCon experiences, you may talk to other attendees and they will have completely different takeaways. So I would definitely encourage that people reach out, look at the hashtags on social media, look at CSUN, that's C-S-U-N, and AxCon is A-X-E space C-O-N. Um, see what you can find, see what other people are saying. Don't don't just listen to us. We, we do know some stuff, but we are far from omniscient when it comes to accessibility, obviously, or anything. So I would I would like to encourage people to do a little bit of self-education, do a little bit of research, see what's out there. When I first started studying accessibility, I had no idea about the cognitive side. I had very little idea about the side that concerns invisibility. I had very little idea about the side that concerns invisible disabilities. It's something that you can constantly find something new to learn about. And that's why I wanted to do the conferences this year. And that's why I'm going to do them as many times as I can. Hopefully uh, next year or maybe the year after that, we'll have them in person. And that will be a completely new and exciting experience to be able to sit in a room with all of these people who've been doing this for 10, 15, 20, 30 years and actually get to talk to them face to face and actually get to experience some of these technologies that we saw at the CSUN exhibit hall. And uh, hopefully we'll also be able to get a lot more uh, updates on new products because we'll actually get to have our hands on them. So I really like this conversation about having these discussions in person because due to CSUN, I've been able to network with uh, presenters and facilitators and it was great getting to know them but there's just something about that extra interaction. You're missing pieces when you meet somebody online, even though it is a great 
experience meeting people online, there still is more that you get in person. And so I'm really looking forward to getting to meet some of these people that I've networked with because of CSUN and able to do that in person. Well, I have to say that I'm very happy to have been able to connect and network with you guys, uh, luckily through Clubhouse, which is being slowly overrun with blind people, which is a good thing. Um, but uh, that's a whole other conversation. But I'm so grateful that I uh, was able to speak with the two of you there and then have you each come and talk with me about the conferences here on Life After Blindness. And I think there's going to be a lot more to come in this space. So people definitely stay tuned because uh, I think we have a lot more to discuss when it comes to all the topics that we've we've talked about today. So Rose and Charles, if people want to get in touch with you or find out more about what you guys are doing or follow you on social media, let the people know how can they do that. So I am singing Tigress on Twitter. I'm also singing Tigress on Clubhouse. And I can be reached by email at rosem at writeme.com. So that's rosem at w-r-i-t-e-m-e dot com. That's me in a nutshell. Thank you. And Charles? Uh, yeah. So I'm on Twitter at T-R-I-S-T-A-R-1693, Tristar1693. Uh, that's also my clubhouse name. My email is charles, C-H-A-R-L-E-S dot Heiser, H-I-S-E-R, 1993 at gmail.com. That's Heiser 1993 at gmail.com. I will make sure to have links to all of that in the show notes. So if you didn't catch any of that or didn't get it uh, written down in time, you could just check out the show notes and click away and go find these guys, follow them and uh, pick their brains a bit and just, you know, Soak it up because this is a lot of great information that we've uh, been able to share here today. So Rose and Charles, thank you both so much for coming on Life After Blindness. I really greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And thanks to all of you once again for taking the time to listen to the Life After Blindness podcast. Again, my thanks to Rose Morales and Charles Heiser for coming on and talking with me about CSUN and AxCon. For more information or links to anything talked about in today's episode, please visit the show notes by going to lifeafterblindness.com slash 42. That's lifeafterblindness.com slash 42. Again, you can email your questions and comments to tim at lifeafterblindness.com. Please join me again next time as together we continue our journey to find that there truly can be a life after blindness. Take care, everybody. Uh